Part Two, Chapter Seven of Better Angel by Richard Meeker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Better Angel by Richard Meeker, Part Two, Chapter Seven. The new year brought slight change to Kurt. Study was the important thing. Korlov, the crabbed old teacher of composition, to his great surprise, presented his name for a foreign scholarship. He was doing well. His quiet zeal was winning him attention, rather tardily, but surely, just as it had in college. The bleak days of January and February went by uneventfully. March brought with it a hint of spring. Without warning there came a day that was spring, spring unmistakably, even in this armored city. The air had in it a vague and teasing softness. People dreamed along the drive as he came home, and sat absently on the long disused and sooty benches. Work was a burden. He had left early for home, and caught an uptown bus. He let three pass, for he wanted one with an open top. He climbed the narrow iron spiral and swayed to the front seat. He took off his hat and stretched himself to a new receptivity. Work, everything, seemed, of a sudden, unsatisfactory and of little consequence. He was lonely. There was no one else on the bus top, and he wanted someone, anyone, to be there. He wanted Derry, he wanted David. He wondered why Chloe hadn't written, and what she would write. He swung off the bus at a convenient stop, crossed the roadway, and sauntered along the path. Got a match? The chap was young and good-looking. He looked as if he would like to walk along with him. Kurt gave him a light and walked on. He wished suddenly, inexplicably, that he had waited and walked with the boy. Maybe he was lonely too. The river, under a miraculously blue sky, was like blued metal. The melody of a Mozart sonata went like a silver chain through his head, looping and relooping its fragile loveliness through him. It carried him to his door. But the door today seemed not so much a door as a barrier that would shut him out from this new yet perennial softness that was in the air. He hated his winter clothes. He changed them and come out again, let the lesson go hang for once. There wasn't much light left. On the table was a letter. It was from Chloe. He had been expecting it. If all had gone well, she was free. What would she say? He ran up the stairs, got into a sweater and corduroy jacket, and with the letter still unopened in his pocket, ran out to the street. He found a park bench, and with the promised spring all about him, opened the letter. It was a quiet letter, and he was glad. There was nothing ecstatic about it. He read, I am Chloe Grayling once more. They gave me back my old name. These two months have been hard ones, as you can guess. Mother has been surprisingly decent about it all but Roy's family hasn't. They made themselves a little ridiculous at first. Later they were openly nasty. But I didn't care much. Oh, what do I feel? As if I had waked up from a bad dream. I want more than anything else, I think, a city, a big city to lose myself in. I've a little money, not much. I didn't ask for alimony. Could I, do you think, find a job in New York somewhere? Anything, I don't care what. I need a change badly. Mother, of course, can see no reason for my leaving. I've had an offer of work in the secretary's office at the university, but you know, and she does, if she would admit it, that it's impossible. 
We simply don't get on well enough together, whoever's the fault may be. There was more, nothing about the two of them, save the satisfaction of being once more able to write. He swung his arms over the back of the bench and looked out across the river. A use for churches, he thought. They do improve the horizon. He grinned at the wickedness of his idea, his mind flashing back to Barton and the Epworth League meetings of years ago. To have Chloe in New York, someone he could see in the evenings or have dinner with. The idea was enticing. His mother would object, he knew, and the hint of responsibility for him that Chloe's letter contained bothered him. He tried to read it again, but it was too dark. If she does come, and can't find work, and goes broke, what then? What is she hoping for? She knows I can't help her, with money. All the unanswerable questions of Christmas came trooping back upon him. Prudent, prudent, you're just an old maid. She's simply a good friend, maybe your best friend, and you're afraid she's going to claim more of you than you're willing to give. Forget the practical details, this time. To the deuce with them. But nevertheless, his letter to her that night was not too enthusiastic. Work would be hard to find, he feared, and living dear. But he would be glad to help if he could, and it would be nice to have her there. The spring was undoubtedly early. April was saturated with it. Tunes as silver and as lilting, as gay and as sweetly sad as a troubadour's, chased and patterned through his head incessantly. And he had not the will to catch them and freeze them into black notes and bars. His prodigality amused him. April brought him the scholarship, and his joy in it was very great. A year in Europe, with scholastic requirements not too strenuous, a new land, freedom such as he had never known, a beauty, he hoped, that he had longed for and dreamed of from boyhood. He would go in June, the summer at Fontainebleau and Paris, a month or so of loafing wherever he chose, then Rome, perhaps, and Munich. His head was so full of these provocative names that the present, in spite of the glamorous weather that softened and remade the whole city, seemed hardly worth noticing. And then Chloe came. She arrived almost unheralded. When he came in one afternoon, full of dreams of Fontainebleau and June, the yellow envelope was awaiting him, a swift reminder that this was America and April. Meet me Grand Central tomorrow morning, 9.17, Chloe. He was a little angry, a little afraid. He hoped she'd have money. He was a little low himself. He'd have to find a room for her at once. What would she want, he wondered. Would she be satisfied with a place such as his? What would these two months be like? It was not yet dark, and he went out, scanning the stone fronts of houses on the cross-town streets, for rooms to let signs, trying to imagine from the non-committal brick or stone or graded doorways what the inside might be like, and always rejecting the house as for some reason unsuitable. Finally he gave up. It would be as well to wait until she arrived. She looked not much different. She was pathetically glad to see him. They stood together in the concourse, oblivious of the milling people all about. She held up her face and looked at him, saying over and over again, Oh, Kurt, it's so good to see you again, so good. And it was good. He was glad to see her, and he despised himself for his timidity and his worryings. She was here, and he was glad. That was enough. He squeezed her arm and, laughing, hurried her through the crush of incoming commuters and into the subway. 
We'll go to my room, he shouted in her ear. As the crowd thinned, they found a seat and shouted inanities at each other, happy as two children. An old man came across the aisle and smiled at them and nodded his head benevolently. They came out into a world, bright with April sunshine. The nicest part of a subway ride is coming out, isn't it, Kurt? You're learning fast. Oh, I like this, she said as they swung over the shallow ridge of a hill and the river spread before them. The trees were faintly green, and the wind blew a colored Sunday supplement crazily, hesitantly down the street and against their feet. They both laughed at its antics, and they kicked themselves loose from it. Once in Kurt's room, Chloe took off her hat, arranged her hair, and sat down on the bed. It was strange having someone here in this room. No one had entered save himself and the cleaning woman since he took it in the fall. He felt that this was something unprecedented, dangerous. They talked for a long time, of Derry and her mother and the feeling and reactions of the past two months. Then he told her of his scholarship, watching her closely. In June, Kurt, you'll be going? Yes, in June. Won't it be great? Oh, it will, it will. She sighed her pleasure. I'm so proud of you, Kurt, and so happy for you. It's what you've wanted, isn't it? And you do deserve it. It seemed genuine. His imagining had been all askew. If it were true, as Roy said, that she had said she loved me, he probably hounded her and drove her into it. He could hear Roy's monotonous voice drilling, accusing, torturing, until she might say almost anything to silence it. She had some money, he found, not much. They had lunch sitting at a counter in a gleaming drugstore and started hunting a room. She was not fussy. Price was the most important consideration. They found one that suited, not far from Kurt's own. If it's too far from whatever work you find to do, you can move after your month is up. Life changed unbelievably. The loneliness, the monastic concentration on a single end was gone. There was the coming year to plan for. There was Chloe to talk to. Evenings were no longer blank expanses between dinner and sleep to be filled in with minute and worrying manipulation of notes and rests and signatures. Chloe, furthermore, was in luck. She got work almost immediately in the registrar's office at Columbia. Won't mother rave, she said to Kurt. You could have done exactly the same work and got more money for it right here at home and had no expense and here you go trailing off to New York. And so on, ad finitum. But it's so marvelous to be away, Kurt, to be really free. I never have been, you know. It was mother first and then Roy. Most people make the break when they go away to college. They leave their families behind. But we never went away, you see, Derry and I. We just stayed. And there was no change. That's been the whole trouble, I think. Mother shrinking and hardening inside, and we growing and expanding, the two of us getting farther and farther apart. Mother fighting all the time for the widening of the breach, fighting, fighting, never seeing its necessity and never giving in. Evenings were now something to look forward to. They would meet for dinner somewhere. Sometimes they would go to a movie and sit restfully in the dark, the flicker and shift of reflected light playing over them and their quiet neighbors while the organ trembled melting sentimentalities. Then a stroll along the river and on the steps of Chloe's house, a laughing good night and a promise for the next evening. Sometimes she would meet him at Korlov's studio in the fifties and on a Fifth Avenue bus top, they would go to Washington Square through the glitter of a New York dusk for supper in some pseudo-Bohemian restaurant. 
where other people from other towns not New York were trying to look as though they had been born to the bohemian purple. They knew it to be fake, but found in the dim lights, the candles, the gay china, the air marbled with smoke, something desirable. Then there would be a symphony concert to hear, and an exit into the din of the city again when it was over, with a new armor to withstand that din, a shining armor woven of sound against the age, an armor in which one could walk the whole night splendidly and forgetfully. Again they would dine hurriedly near the square and walk through the squirming life of the east side, down Allen Street, under the dark thunder of the L, past windows crowded with pink and blue quilts and shining brass pots and candlesticks for people from uptown to exclaim over. Or, when it rained, they would go sit in Kurt's room while the water rushed and pounded on the gable and gurgled down the trough with a soft insistence. Chloe was good company, his friend, his sweetheart. He fancied so sometimes, though no word of it passed between them. And always at the thought, the image of Derry or of David rose, forcing the thought from him, and he knew where his love lay. She was so like Derry, and yet so different. He fancied in her eyes sometimes a hunger that frightened him and set him to wondering. He was twenty-two, and so far, as girls went, ignorant as a child. Something in him told him to experiment and find out for himself. What if you were all wrong in your fine idealizing, it said. You're afraid, that's all. He felt the hunger growing in Chloe. She had been married. Her knowledge frightened him. He had seen the look in the eyes of girls along the drive in the April twilights, and because it hinted of mysteries into which he was uninitiated, it embarrassed him invariably and sent him hurrying on with lowered eyes. He had seen the same look in David's eyes, but that he now understood and could cope with. He looked about him in the streets and was ashamed. He seemed sometimes to be surrounded by boys younger than himself, who were years older in experience. He almost hated his parents at such times for not letting him dance, for not making him want girls. Or was he really incapable of loving a girl? Was he really different, really one of the beings he read about so zealously? He was, of course. It had all been decided, and the ground fought over a thousand times. Yet some increment of uncertainty made him torture himself still with analysis. He could never tell Chloe, of course. How was he to make her understand? It was a threatening afternoon. Low clouds, like dark wool, hung almost to the treetops, and the air was oppressive with the promise of rain. They had supper, and were walking towards the river when the rain broke in great spattering drops on the pavement. They ran the last block and arrived in Kurt's room wet and laughing and breathless. You'll have to get dry. It'll probably stop soon. He gave her his dressing gown and a pair of slippers. She spread her clothes on the cold radiator and, propping the pillows behind her, lay back on the bed. His desk lamp sent oblique shadows up the sloping panes and angles of the ceiling and made a broken half-light in the room. I'm glad you let me take care of you once in a while, Chloe. It makes me feel responsible and almost grown up. Grown up? She laughed. You silly boy. You know ever so much more than I, and I believe you're quite aware of it. You're fishing. He shrugged his shoulders. In books, maybe. In lots of ways, you sense things, you overhear things. You're bigger than you know. 
You say that because you are a poor deluded creature, Chloe. And he smiled at her. Your slipper's coming off. You will die insisting that I'm an artist. If I ever have a biography written of my funny life, I shall certainly want you to do it. Don't say that, Kurt. You're the real thing, or will be. Maybe I'm not a very good critic for you, but I won't have you say that. There, you see, illogical lady. In one breath you say I'm wise, in the next you say I don't know myself. And to know oneself, platonically speaking, is the very essence of wisdom. Knowing as I know, however, isn't everything. Experiencing counts, too. At least the wise men say it does. And I've experienced very little. I've never even been desperately ill since I was a baby, and that doesn't count because I don't remember it. I've never been hurt except in little annoying ways. I almost wish I could be sometime. She was silent, looking at him curiously. Then she said slowly, And do you think that my marriage has given me an experience you haven't had, perhaps need? She had come to the point brutally. He would have preferred not to say it, to play with the idea, but not to admit it. How should he answer? He was afraid, again afraid of those direct confessions, these turnings of his feelings and his thoughts inside out, particularly to a woman. Perhaps that. It wasn't a beautiful experience, Kurt. It should have been, too, since it was my first. But I didn't love Roy ever. I think, though I told myself I did, and did my best to pretend, what was in her eyes? She could teach him if she would, and if he dared. But did he really want to know? Come here, Kurt. He went to the bed, and she took his hands in hers, and looked at him searchingly. Sit here. He sat beside her. I'm going to do something for you. She seemed suddenly old and wise, and he incredibly young and inexperienced. Her hands clasped behind his head, and she drew him down over her until their lips met. Her breasts were warm and soft against him, and her lips hot and moist, too hot, too moist. They fastened upon his own, and something in him went cold and rigid. What was this? A kiss? This shame? this burning shame? Would it never end? The world was one red, endless turning. It whirled days and eons away, and still the lips held him, until it seemed his lips and these other lips were grown obscenely together, and to tear them apart flesh must be torn from bleeding flesh. When it was over he walked blindly to the window and pressed his burning face against the pane that streamed with rain. He wanted to cry. He wanted to disappear forever. Yet she had done it for him. That was a part of knowledge. He felt old again, but no happier. Chloe lay still a moment, then rose, slipped on her dress, pressed his hand in passing, and was gone. What did she think of him now? He could have possessed her completely, and he had felt only helpless dismay and a shriveling disgust. This was nature, raw and living. He did not want it. He walked to the mirror and stared at his image. Kurt Gray, Kurt Gray, what are you? What will all this mean to you? Years are going on and on. Derry will marry sometime, you know. David, dare you count on David? Oh, what does one do when one gets older? Kurt put on his slicker and walked in the rain, aimlessly, steadily, until he was too tired to walk farther. Then he went dully to bed. 
There was a reticence between them now. Chloe's hunger was unappeased. His own, or the one he had suspected might lurk in him somewhere, undiscovered, did not exist. They walked and talked as before, but something like an invisible wall had come between them. May was going, and on June 8th he was to sail. The news of his scholarship had brought him many letters, congratulatory, sad, envious. His mother and father were proud of him, but not quite reconciled to his going so far away. His mother's letter made him sorry for her, but glad for his independence. They did not feel they could come to New York to see him off, and it was this that hurt his mother most. It hurt him, too, but he steeled himself and wrote her pleasant cajoleries and gay expectancies of the summer and the coming year, and promises of the fine things he would bring back to her. Derry was graduating, and Mrs. Grayling, with an unexpected generosity, had promised him a hundred dollars. He was going to use it to come to New York and see Kurdoff, and visit his sister, and, if all went well, perhaps to stay. David was coming, too, to spend the summer in Woodstock, sketching. His letters were still ecstatic, still counting the hours till I see you, letters. If it had not been for Chloe, his happiness would have been complete. He had failed there, and he could not learn what she thought of his failure. There was no stiffening of the will that could drive him to success there. He felt reproach in her look, in the touch of her fingers on his sleeve, although nothing further was said. He was to sail Saturday. Derry and David were coming on Friday morning. Thursday he finished the last details of tickets and passport and visa and packing. Friday should be a gala day. Thursday evening it was warm, uncomfortably so. The air was still and humid, and above the city the stars were brilliant in a flannel sky. He took Chloe to dinner in the village. They smoked and talked, and finally took a bus as far as Central Park, where they joined the other loiterers who strolled aimlessly up and down the graveled paths. They found a deserted bench beside a pool that reflected the stars and was recurrently sheened blue and crimson, blue and crimson, blue and crimson, as a great electric sign across the park flashed against the sky. A hundred, a thousand, an endless number of benches here, in every city of the world, holding each two lovers. We might be any of these lovers, he thought, as Chloe leaned her cheek against his shoulder. But how strange, how at odds they were with this universal mating. Something in him yearned to mix itself in this democracy of love. Why couldn't he, like that young chap in the white trousers, like the sailor who had just passed, take his girl in his arms and make the old, the universal pledge? Of all young men in this early summer night, he alone seemed discordant and perverse. They said nothing. Slow feet scuffled near them sometimes, and the pool flashed blue and crimson, blue and crimson. Suddenly her hand was holding his. It was cold, and his own hand fastened over it, protectingly. Kurt? Kurt, dear. Her voice was tense and frightened. I'm afraid I love you. He stood up quickly, his fists clenched. Then he turned and put his hands on her shoulders. He looked into her shadowed eyes. Chloe, I was afraid of that, too. You mean you don't love me? No, no, I don't, I don't know what I mean. Only you mustn't, Chloe. I'm, I'm not worth it. Dear, dear, don't ever say that. You're worth all I can give you, 
and more than I can give you. She was longing, he knew, for his embrace, his kiss, his endearments. It was beastly that she should have to play the lover. He couldn't play up. It wouldn't be fair. He sat down again, miserably. I can't, Chloe, ever. She turned, frightened. What do you mean? I only mean... Oh, Chloe, please don't let's say any more about this. Kurt, you're frightening me. You're hurting me. What is it? How should he say it? Shame burned through him like acid. You read a book of mine not long ago, Chloe. It was called Love's Coming of Age. Do you remember? Yes, but... Do you remember a chapter about... about... She broke in, almost hysterically. No, no, oh no, not that. You aren't that, Kurt. You aren't that. Tell me you aren't. She twisted her fingers in his coat. I'm afraid I am, dear. Sobbing, her head dropped to the back of the bench. He leaned over her, trembling, uncertain. Don't, Chloe. Chloe, Chloe, dear, don't. I like you awfully much. You had to know it sometime. It wouldn't have been fair or kind any other way. Don't cry so, Chloe. Please don't. He sat, half facing her, and drew her head against his body. Listen, dear, you told me once, Chloe, that I was the best friend you had in the world. I'll tell you the same. You're the best friend I have, the best. And such a friendship is worth having, isn't it? Isn't it finer, maybe rarer than the other thing? Such a strange mix-up, such a queer lopsided triangle. Yet the lines are all straight and perfect in their way. I've loved Derry for years. He doesn't love me much, if at all. You love me. Three relations, different, right, wrong, who knows. Don't let it mean unhappiness for you, Chloe. I'm sorry I told you so bluntly. I didn't know how else. If I hadn't liked you, and known you so well, I would never have dared. But I knew what you were hoping, or thought I did, and I couldn't let you go on hoping so. Her voice came to him, muffled yet familiar. It's all right, Kurt. All right. I don't quite understand yet, but I'll try. It's all right, friend, Kurt. Let's walk. We'll feel better. They stood up, and he kissed her forehead tenderly. Kurt. Oh, Kurt. Leaning on his arm, she seemed suddenly happy, transfigured with happiness. This may be the thing that's ours exclusively, yours and mine. All these others, she gestured vaguely in the dark, all these other twos go on in the old way. We'll go on and on in the new way, and build, oh, who knows what. And arm in arm, like two lovers, Kurt thought ironically, they walked home. His feelings after he was alone, and indeed all next day, even after Derry and David had come, were mingled. He was glad Chloe had taken it so sensibly. It had given her, it seemed, after the first shock, a deep, almost mystic elation. Here was to be a unique, a spiritual friendship. The ideal was his own, but it failed to make him happy. He had given a part of himself, his secret, inviolate self, to another. All the following day, David's eyes were on him, David's too knowing eyes. It was a day for laughing and foolishness. Arm in arm, four abreast, they had swung down the avenue, making jokes of everything they saw. They lunched in the village, they took a subway to Coney Island, and tiring of the Blair, back again, they went to a musical show. At the end of the evening they left Chloe at her house 
and returned to the hotel. Kurt had given up his room the day before, and taken one here adjoining that occupied by Derry and David. They both came in, and all three sprawled crosswise on his bed, quiet and tired. David, after a few minutes, turned out the light, released the shade to the top of the window, and lay down again close beside Kurt. The room was high above the street, and the city sound came to them muffled and distant, a low cacophonous counterpoint to their thinking. A boat moaned four deep notes, and they all looked up and smiled in the uncertain light. "'Won't be long now,' said Derry, giving Kurt a poke in the ribs. Kurt and David smoked silently, their eyes in the summer sky, luminous through the window squares. David turned at last, took his hand, and spoke slowly. He spoke of many things, and to Kurt he seemed wise and experienced. Darkness concealing what he could never help mistrusting, if ever so slightly. He spoke of a cathedral, dim with incense, trembling with music, to which young men such as they came to worship. Some were priests in the temple, others were urchins defiling its beauty. They, these three, David and Derry and Kurt, should be a priestly trinity. What they felt for each other was high and fine and worthy. No one outside the cathedral could understand this. They would sneer and perhaps even persecute. But the faith in the rightness of their strange creed must stand, shining and perfect. He took Derry's hand, too, reaching across Kurt, and joined all three on Kurt's breast. The three of us, always, priests in the temple, shall it be so. Kurt was strangely elevated. Here was his own ideal, the one he had groped for so long, with such struggle, told him again in a prose poem whose symbolism came like a fine and subtle vindication of his own thinking. The night, the street sounds, the curious sense it gave him of being set apart in the midst of a multitude, three human beings bound by one desire, by one splendid ideal, swept him on to a fine and rapturous approval too deep for discussion. You've said it so beautifully, David, was all he could say, and he kissed him. He would have kissed Derry, too, but Derry, somewhat disappointingly, had fallen asleep. Curtin David lay there then, talking softly of the coming year, making promises for the future, a life together somewhere, the three of them, which should be the ideal realized, the cathedral glorified, the service newly consecrated. It seemed only fair to tell David of Chloe. Chloe understands all this, David. He seemed frightened. You mean you told her? Yes, I told her. You, you were very brave, or very foolish. Perhaps. No, I don't think so. I know her better than you, David, better possibly than anyone else on earth, and I know she can understand. No woman, Kurt, began David. But she's different. You must believe me, she is. You must believe me. You'll understand how it came about some day. The towers against the sky were becoming blacker as the sky paled and brightened, and turned to dull ash, to rose, to amber. You'll be tired, Kurt, for your trip. Oh, what difference, Kurt said softly. It all has to be a new adventure, David, for you, for Derry, for me, for Chloe, too. What better time to start a new adventure? Only please remember, and make Derry remember, that I'm alone. 
You two will have each other. I will only have the ideal. It's high enough and fine enough to carry me through, if you both will help me, will you? And not long thereafter, as the great boat swung out into the river, amidst the thicket of waving arms on the pier, he could see the three of them standing together, with Chloe's red scarf floating above their heads. A little woman in front of him stood on tiptoe and sang in a strained and excited voice, Sailing, sailing, over the bounding main, interrupting herself with little exclamations of, There he is! I can see him! Good-bye! Good-bye! All this world of departing humans gliding away from the greater world of staying humans with so little effort. His throat was tight, and he waved as frantically as anyone else, perfectly aware that none of the three could see him. The people became puppets, the puppets a blur, with a tiny, wavering spot of red that was Chloe's scarf, and under it, Derry, joking probably, Chloe exalted, yet ready to cry, and David with the disturbing eyes that seemed always to follow him. He felt curiously superior to the waving people on the deck as he pushed through them and sought his stateroom. End of Part 2, Chapter 7